Well, the uh, thermostats are being checked and everybody is finding their seat. Got to make sure it's the right temperature in here. You did it. Good. All right. First announcement. Early voting started Monday, this last Monday. We have this week and next week to vote. And um, the election day is actually on July 14th. This is important. It's the runoff. It's primaries and picking the right people, etc. And then we're looking for volunteers who are willing to come in on Fridays to help clean the church while Selena is out uh, with uh, the uh, COVID virus, and we need to be in prayer for her and for her family. Pam, have you heard if her family's been tested? They've heard? No, I, I didn't talk to them. Okay. We don't know about the family. They're probably still waiting on their on their tests. But if you'd like to help out with cleaning the church in this interim, which will probably be for three or four weeks, you can contact uh, Cheryl Jeffries uh, either through the westhoustonbiblechurch.org website, send us an email, or contact Cheryl directly. And then Monday nights, Charlie Clough is teaching a three-part special on how to hold on to your faith in a hostile world. That is really important for kids. Uh, it's good for adults, but it's really important for kids because the attacks that they're going to undergo while they are in any kind of public education system is is phenomenal. And there are many, many professors who just want to uh, directly target, identify, target, and destroy any Christian that comes into their classroom. And it's much worse than anything that most of us pr- probably experienced uh, when we were when we were in school. Scripture teaches that we need to be in right relationship with the Lord before we uh, study the Word. As we walk with the Lord, as we walk in the light of His Word. We are to be in right relationship to God. When we sin, we are no longer walking with him. We are walking according to our sin nature. So we need to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together tonight to just focus our attention on that which has eternal value, eternal significance, and is necessary for our thinking, necessary for the nourishment and the edification of our souls. Father, you are omniscient. You know all the problems, all the difficulties, all the challenges that we face in life. The arrival of this virus is no surprise to you. It's part of your plan. And Father, we just need to be concerned about how we are to respond to it how we are to plan, how we are to take care of ourselves and our families and not uh, not put our lives in danger or our livelihoods. Father, we do pray for our president. We pray for our governor. We pray for those in local positions of authority that you might give them wisdom. Father, this is a time in this nation when we are dealing with some horrific attacks. There are so many people who are ignorant of American history They are ignorant of biblical truth. They willingly suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They think that it is good to respond to what they perceive to be injustices in ways that are totally prohibited by your word for a believer. And they are willing to support organizations that are hostile to Israel, hostile to Jews. And Father, we pray that there might be a wake-up call Uh, to believers, that they might recognize that there is an absolute truth and that they need to align themselves with your word and not with their culture, not with their friends, not with their ethnicity, uh, not with their nation if necessary, but they may put their focus upon you because there's only one relationship that matters 
That is our relationship with you and in the body of Christ, our relationship with other believers, and that is first and foremost. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we cover this evening, that we might learn to think critically, evaluating uh, different positions, evaluating different uh, platforms on the basis of these divine institutions. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. For everybody here, this is not new territory. We have all covered the divine institutions in many different ways, in many different contexts. And I remember when I was probably 14 or 15 years of age, the first time I heard the divine institutions taught, I was just mesmerized with it. I immediately grasped the significance of this, and over the years, uh, I expanded it, thought about it. I remember about 1975-ish, somewhere in there, there were, uh, was a group of uh, uh, folks in uh, Charlie Clough's church in Lubbock, and they had a conference on the divine institutions and wrote out uh, various uh, position papers on each of the divine institutions, and I had copies of those. I may still somewhere buried in my files. I just thought about that a little while ago, and I need to dig those out. But uh, probing the significance of each of these divine institutions is extremely important. And so that is what we are going to begin to look at tonight. We have been looking at the foundations, and we started by looking at a worldview. And a worldview is extremely important. Uh, today, as I pointed out in previous lessons, surveys indicate that fewer than 20% of evangelical Christians have a biblical worldview. And this is extremely damaging because what we have studied and seen and will continue to see is that in the history of the United States, in the generation that shaped this nation by the founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, they were heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by a Judeo, their Judeo-Christian worldview. And they understood, as I pointed out through some quotes in the previous lesson, that this form of government that we have was made to function and would only function on the basis of a people who were responsible and a people who understood uh, the ethics and morality of Christianity. And they were very, very firm on that. And they knew that if the nation ever departed from Christianity, then it would doom this nation to, uh, to collapse. And that's what we're seeing around us right now. And so the, uh, the problem, as they would identify it and as we would identify it, is ultimately a spiritual problem. And the solution is a spiritual solution. And so what we'll cover as we go through these divine institutions is what the Bible teaches about these divine institutions, and then it will give us a framework for evaluating different policies, different suggestions from different uh, politicians, and from the platforms of the political parties. And I think that's very important because you may know of a an individual that may be uh, someone you think is in line with what we're outlining in terms of a Judeo-Christian worldview and in terms of the, the uh, divine institutions, and yet they belong to a party that's platform does not. And it is sad today that we have split so much uh, in uh, and become so partisan in everything. But the reality is, and I think this is true more on the left than it is on the right, but that the heads of the parties, the Speaker of the House, the uh, minority leader in the Senate now, uh, exercise an incredible control over their uh, senators and over their uh, representatives and blackmail them in many different ways and uh, threaten them with withholding funds from the parties and other other. Uh, nefarious means in order to make sure that everyone 
uh, votes in line on many of the critical issues today. And so I think it's very important for us to analyze party platforms as well as individual uh, candidates in order to see uh, what is biblical and what fits with a biblical position. So tonight we're going to begin with the first divine institution, which is one that is severely threatened today by all of these alternative views, and that is personal responsibility, individual responsibility, and this is established in the Scripture and really is the foundation for all of the other all of the other uh, divine institutions. So the first part of this series focused on a worldview and what the Judeo-Christian worldview is, and we looked at it in terms of the three basic areas of what we believe about ultimate reality, what we believe about knowledge, where do we get knowledge, how do we know truth, and third, then on the basis of our view of ultimate reality, our view of knowledge where we get truth, we derive a system of absolutes. And it's very important to ask these questions. And as I pointed out in the uh, first uh, lesson in this series, that in among the uh, liberal political theorists, they believe and, and they, they talk and they write about why it is wrong to talk about these three areas. Because if you talk about these, you'll get distracted. What we need to do is change everything that's above the waterline and without looking at what's underneath. So it, it, it deceives people. It deceives many Christians uh, because they don't understand that what sa- may sound good as a political policy or a political platform is contrary to a Judeo-Christian view of ultimate reality, which is a a, which is God, who is a personal, infinite God, as we studied. It is God because we are created in God's image that we can know things and we can know truth because God made us in order to do that. But we have to understand that there's a problem, and that is that man sinned, and because of sin, uh, the human thinking is corrupted, the world is corrupted, and society is corrupted, and we can't find perfection anywhere. We can find a measure of justice at times, but we can never find the kind of ideal justice that a lot of uh, young people today are screaming for, and um, they, they correctly recognize that the life is terribly unfair. Life is unjust, and you will face many difficulties in life this morning. I was watching, briefly watching the news, and they were talking about this young soldier, female soldier from Houston, who was, uh, I would suggest, probably brutally murdered, and they finally found her body and identified it yesterday, and that is just something that is that is horrible. It's possible that had the beginnings of a serial, killer, excuse me, serial killer up there due to the fact that uh, this guy, this suspect, committed suicide yesterday, and just such a tragedy, such a heartache for for her, for for her family, her parents, uh, her siblings, uh, just just a terrible thing. And so they interviewed a man. I'm not sure who he was. I really wasn't paying attention because I prefer to only pay attention to the weather in the mornings and not get distracted by all the nonsense and but i heard him and you know he, he what he expressed was unfortunately the view of many people today he said we have to have justice for her well that's true that justice comes through our judicial system but he says everybody deserves justice nobody deserves to have this happen and all of that is true he said we have to live in a world where there are no injustices well that's not true and he went on in that vein that, that we have to perfect everything, and you can't do that. And this is the problem that we have in a lot of the trends today from these various movements. And let me suggest that these various movements are using these young people and their innocence and their naivete to use that in order to create chaos and disruption. Because we live in a world that is not perfect, 
we live in a world where where we have had a such a measure of prosperity and stability in the last 75 years since the end of World War II that it is and 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 the technological advances that we have are unbelievable there has been nothing like this in the history of mankind and yet we've reared a generation of young people those and i would say anybody under 40 that the vast majority of them think that people are basically good and perfectible and that we can actually get rid of all these things. Now, it's good to think that we can fight injustice, and we should. We sh- I'm not suggesting that we should just roll over and let it happen. But we have to recognize that there's a big difference between recognizing that, yes, injustice exists. We all will suffer. We will suffer because of the bad decisions of other people. We will suffer because of our own bad decisions. We will suffer because we just live in a fallen world where there are going to be diseases and pestilences and famines and wars and where people are going to be hor- do horrible and brutal and violent things to one another, whether it's in a criminal act of murder or assault or whether it's in a war. There are going to be these horrible things that happen. But we can never perfect this world because we are not perfect, we're not perfectible, and society is not perfectible. And we learn that from history, and we learn that ultimately from the Bible, and history gives us that illustration. And so we have to understand that there's this huge divide that occurs from those who think man is basically good and those that think man, as the Bible teaches, is basically evil. And when the Bible teaches that man is basically evil, that's not They're not saying that we can't do good things and that we can't be kind, we can't be generous, we can't be helpful. The Bible doesn't say that, but it says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And so man can be improved, but he can't be perfected. And that's all we can do. We have to restrain and control the sin nature. We have to have laws to do that, and we have to have those who enforce the laws in order to do that. And this idea that we can make it with only social workers and psychologists and that we don't need uh, law enforcement carrying uh, sidearms to enforce the law is just pie in the sky. It's utopic garbage. And those who attempt to follow that always fall apart. And there have been experiment after experiment after experiment to try in in small communities like New Harmony back in the 1830s up in the uh, Illinois area. It lasted two or three years, and they found out that that what would happen is that uh, because everybody was sharing everything, it was an early uh, communal type of experiment, that everybody who shared everything, well, it deter- the lazy people were lazy and didn't work. And before long, the people who were industrious and worked got tired of taking care of the lazy people, and so they began to quit working. And it wasn't long before the whole thing fell apart because that is human nature. Human nature since the fall of Adam is that we are sinners and that there are consequences for our bad decisions. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on tonight. So first of all, let's uh, look at this in terms of the this section. We're looking at the divine institutions because this is the foundation of social order. I stole that title from a book by Rusus Rushduni, who was a founding father of the theonomy and, and modern post-millennial movement. And in his book on foundations of social order, he basically go, has 10 chapters and goes through the Ten Commandments. He has a lot of interesting and helpful insights on the importance of the Mosaic Law to provide order, but the Mosaic Law wasn't the foundation of social order. That's the one thing he missed. The, the Ten Commandments were legislations, legislative mandates that were built upon the divine institutions. The divine institutions preceded those uh, Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. 
Psalm 11.3 is a key verse for our study. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? How do we identify these foundations? And we started off with the looking at the Judeo-Christian worldview, and now we're in this section looking at divine institution. So we're going to divine, de- define a divine institution in a very specific way. The term divine institution is not a biblical term, but it is a theological term that has been observed by theologians for centuries. They have understood the implications of that, but it wasn't until the 20th century that this really began to be uh, systematized and organized. And so the definition is that these are absolute social structures. They are not culture-dependent. They are not ethnic-dependent. They are not subculture-dependent. They are universal absolutes created by God and built into the social framework of the nature of humanity. So it's for the entire human race, believers and unbelievers alike. Now, that means that if you are an unbeliever, if you are an atheist, and you follow these basic divine institutions and honor them in your life, you will have a a measure of stability. You'll have a measure of prosperity. You will be protecting yourself and your family from many bad decisions and many errors and, and many heartaches. So it applies to unbelievers just as much as believers, although the believer who is focused on God's word is going to have, obviously, a much greater understanding and appreciation for these divine institutions. They are given by God for the perpetuation, the stability, the protection, and the freedom of the human race. So first of all, we have the word perpetuation. This is part of the first three divine institutions. We'll look at them in a minute. It's part of, and those three divine institutions, as you know, are personal responsibility, marriage, and family. And from the very beginning, God gave the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so that is the perpetuation of the human race. And it is to be restricted to marriage and family. And when you have homosexuality, you will not perpetuate the human race. So they are designed for the perpetuation and for the stability of the human race. And what we will see as we go along is that if you do not have solid families, if you don't have mom and dad supervising the children, if you have a culture that develops broken homes and broken marriages where you have single families or single parent families, then this will lead to destructive consequences in most situations. These are not absolutes in the sense that it's going to happen in every situation, but this is true in many situations. And there was a study done by Daniel Patrick Moynihan was commissioned during the Johnson administration to do an analysis and a report on the state of the uh, black family. And his report is quite well known, and some have even commented that it was the last honest report ever uh, to be published by the federal government. And he observed at that time that 25% of children in the in the black community were being raised or being reared in a in a single family home and he warned that if this did not change then it would lead to a collapse of the social structure within the black community and so now we're at a time when 75% of children in the black community are reared in a single family a single parent family, and it has led to disaster. It has led to a culture that glorifies 
uh, violence in, in many cases. It's glorified in their music. It's glorified. Now, this isn't true about every black person. We have to be very careful today because one of the things I'm going to point out is that the Bible focuses on individuals and doesn't create stereotypes and generalities. And what you hear today is black people are this way, white people are this way. That is so wrong. Uh, that should not be acceptable language because everybody is an individual. Everybody is personally accountable to God and will be personal, personally responsible to God. We'll see that when we come to the end of history and there is a judgment for believers at the judgment seat of Christ and later there will be a judgment for unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. We're not going to be there in our classes. We're not going to be there in our social classes. We're not going to be there in our ethnic groups, in our cultures, in our subcultures. It's each individual will be standing alone before God, answerable for each of their own decisions. And God's not, you know... The, they're not even going to be able to say, well, all my friends and family, everybody was doing it. They're going to get one look from God, and they're no, they know they won't get away from it. You know, the, he will, his righteous gaze will expose all of their rationalizations for exactly uh, what they are. And without good families, good parents, there will be no stability. The divine institutions are designed for protection, this comes later as a result of the collapse of the first age, the age of the Gentiles, the first couple of dispensations after the fall. You have the flood, the destruction of all humanity, and God authorizes human government. Human government is not evil. I know there are some who take the position that government is evil. Government is not evil. People are evil. And you have evil people who have positions in government, and every person that we have in government is evil because we're all fallen. Even the Christians can easily succumb to greed and to power lust and to abuse in, in power. And so they, there have to be those checks and balances in the government, and that is exactly what the uh, Founding Fathers understood. But the national government is designed to protect the citizens from internal enemies, from criminality, and from external enemies, from those who would uh, destroy people uh, and impose their power on them. And then positively, it's designed that when things are working well, that the citizen has freedom, has the opportunity to develop their talents, their gifts, their, all of their abilities and to succeed well in life and to enjoy the ben benefits and results of their uh, work, their labor, their education, all that, that they have uh, put into their lives. And so these divine institutions are given for the blessing of the human race. Without them, there is divine judgment. Now, I want you to remember, I just used two words, blessing and judgment, blessing and cursing. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. So we're going to look at these divine institutions. The first is individual responsibility. We are, will be held accountable for every decision, every action, every thought in one way or another. In many occasions, God is going to hold us accountable because we are going to reap what we sow, and there will be consequences. They may not be seen by other people, but when we engage in carnality, it is destructive to our soul. Remember what Peter says, that the lusts war against the soul. So even if there are no external consequences, there are internal consequences as a result of failure to obey God. So we have individual responsibility and accountability. Second, there's marriage. Marriage is created by God. It's instituted by God. That's one of the important distinctions is the unbeliever wants to think because he starts not with a personal infinite God who has created man in his image and likeness, but they start with eternal matter eternal matter, eternal energy, whatever it is, they have the impersonal 
universe, even though they try to make it personal. And they will talk about the mind of the universe or whatever, uh, just to try to personalize that, which is nothing but, uh, but basically rock and material things. And so for them, marriage is something that just happened. People thought, oh, isn't it nice? We'll just kind of pair off and, and life will be a little bit better. And so marriage was invented along the way as a very pragmatic solution uh, by, by people. But it's, it's just a convention. In Texas, before we had COVID, it was sort of a convention in many households in Texas that after church on Sunday, you would go home and you'd watch the Dallas Cowboys play football or you'd watch the Houston Texans play football. Or maybe if you're in a small town in Texas, everybody supports the local high school and their football team. You'd go to the uh, local uh, high school Friday night football game. That's a convention. That's just something you do. In, uh, In England, their convention is that you drive on the uh, left side of the, uh, on the, for them, the left side of the road, and for us, we drive on the right-hand side of the road. Those are conventions. They are determined by cultures, and they are not absolutes. The, the divine institutions are instituted, inaugurated, established by God, and therefore they are absolutes. They are for every culture, every country, every ethnicity, uh, no matter what. So God is the one who invented marriage, and God defines marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. One man, one woman. Third, we have family. Family, husband and wife produce children, and their responsibility is to nurture those children and to teach them about God, to teach them the gospel, to teach them the word of God, and how to think about everything in life from the framework of divine viewpoint. Then we have the fourth divine institution, which is government. Now, I'm going to put all of these up here. These first three that we've talked about are all before the fall. You have man is held responsible for his decisions in the Garden of Eden in perfect environment. They had responsibilities. A lot of people don't think of it that way. They think, well, they just sat around and did things. Well, we're going to see that that's not what the Bible says. Marriage was designed before the fall. Neither Adam nor the woman had sin natures. They had a perfect relationship. God perfectly designed them to go together. Then you have family. Families would have been perfect if they had had children. And so these three divine institutions are instituted in perfect environment, and they're designed to promote productivity so that the husband and the wife work together. The man has the primary responsibility. The woman is to help him and to assist him in fulfilling God's uh, role for him in life. And so this is to promote productivity so that the two can work together to carry out God's mandate and to advance civilization. But because of sin, uh, human race ended up in a situation by Genesis 6 where the, the intent of their heart was evil continually. And so after the flood, God established three other divine institutions. The fourth one is government. And this is, this is indicated through the judicial uh, command in the covenant with Noah that if man, if a human being murders another human being, then that human being, the murderer, should sacrifice his life, should forfeit his life, because he has uh, attacked and destroyed someone created in the image of God. That's what Genesis 9, 6 says. So God delegated that responsibility, and we'll study that when we get there. Then the human race failed again miserably. They failed to scatter and fill the earth as God had originally Uh, commanded Adam and Eve, and then he repeats the command to Noah and his descendants. But many of them congregated in the area of what is now Iraq, and they built a tower to God, 
to as as an attack on God. They were asserting their independence from God, their autonomy from God, and so God brought judgment upon them and established nations, and he did that by dividing the languages. Prior to that, everybody spoke the same language, and so everybody could get together and unite against God, but God saw that that would be much, much worse. You know, always think about this. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Now, he knows exactly what would have happened if he had left the human race with one language and without national divisions. A lot of people say, oh, well, nationalism is so terrible. Having nations is so terrible. These, look at all of the wars. Look at all of the battles. Look at all of the competition for territory. Look at all of the ways in which one, uh, one people group has destroyed, annihilated, or whatever to some other people group. But God in his omniscience knew that, if he, that it would be worse if they were united than it was if they're divided. Think about that. Morning devotion time. What would it have been like? How It would not have been utopic. It would have been worse than today if God had not divided the languages and divided people into nations. So we have the establishment of nations and national identities. And remember our definition Our definition is that these are absolute social structures instituted by God for the entire human race, believers and unbelievers alike, and they're given for the the perpetuation, stability, protection, and freedom of the human race. That means when you follow them, there's blessing. When you don't, there's cursing. So I've got to run through this slide real quick to get all the stuff back up there. The sixth is Israel. Now, why did I put Israel in there? I've toyed with this for years. What's the role of Israel? You can't put the church in there. Why? Because a divine institution has an, is for believer and unbeliever alike. The church is only compri- comprised of believers. But Israel has something special, a significant clause in the Abrahamic covenant that those who bless you, I will bless. God didn't say, those believers who bless you, I will bless. He said, those, believer or unbeliever, who bless you, I will bless. You know, one of the greatest uh, trading partners for Israel right now is India. India is not a nation known for their Christianity. In fact, they're very hostile to Christianity right now. But they are... They have entered into a number of very positive trade agreements with Israel, and they are a blessing to Israel. There's not a tone of anti-Semitism at all within Hinduism or or within, within India. And so they are reaping some blessing because of their relationship to Israel. God said, those who bless Israel, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And so we have examples today. Uh, if you get the Gatestone Institute, uh, or you can go to their website, they have an article that just came out this morning by Soren Kern, who is a believer. He has spoken at pre-trib uh, a couple of times. He's European. He's European. He lives in Spain, I believe, and he writes a lot for Gatestone. And he wrote a two-piece, uh, two-piece article, two-part uh, article for. Uh, Gatestone on Antifa, and he wrote the first, what came out today is the first part on Black Lives Matter. And he is showing, demonstrating from their quotes, from their papers, from their website, and we'll go over some of this eventually, uh, probably in our study on rebellion on Tuesday night. Uh, He is demonstrating that they are Marxists, that the two women that founded Black Lives Matter clearly stated that they were educated and trained as community Marxist community organizers, and that their goal is disruption. Marxism is always uh, 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 put on people through violence. It, Marxism has always come into uh, application through violence. And so we have to understand these things, and that's the very core of this, uh, this movement called Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter has come out. They have statements 
He has statements. There was a video I posted on my Facebook page last night that came out of um, uh, that came out where it's filming a Black Lives Matter demonstration in Washington D.C. where they're chanting hostile statements about Israel. We know you murder children. We know where you are, Israel. We know you murder children. And that uh, Black Lives Matter in England has also come out with extremely anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist, anti-Israel. Now, people have a hard time understanding those three terms are synonymous. If you're anti-Zionist, anti-Israel, you are anti-Semitic. You may not think you are. You may be self-deceived, but you are anti-Semitic because Israel is the Jewish nation and its purpose and its existence is to provide protection for Jewish people. It came into existence again at following the Holocaust, which was a huge impetus for the return of many Jews to a nation that would protect them because no other nation on earth was concerned about protecting the Jews uh, during World War II. And so that was one reason there. So if you don't want them to have a nation that will protect them, that's at the very core of anti-Semitism. So it's hostility to individual Jews. So this is a very important reality. How you feel about Israel and policies that are uh, held by governments in relation to the state of Israel are either in line with God's plan and purpose or they're not. And so if some organization, some political party, some politicians, some leaders are not pro-Israel and they come out with statements that are pro-Arab, pro-Palestinian, then they are antagonistic to the plan of God. In uh, Suzanne Kokanen's recent book on the journey to the Holocaust, she points out that hostility to God's plan is hostility to God that if you reject God's plan, which is to choose the Jewish people as as the promised seed and the people of God, if you reject his plan, you are rejecting God. Hostility to God's people is hostility to God. And in the Old Testament, uh, God chose Israel. They are still his people, and they will have a future in the land, in the millennial kingdom, and on into eternity. Christians are a second group, a unique group, as we've been studying in Ephesians on on um, Sunday morning, a unique group, a distinctive group that are also God's people, and hostility to Christians is hostility to God. An attack on Christians and Christianity is an attack on God. And so we as Christians need to remember that. So there are many Christians out there who are not taught well. And they don't understand extremely basic things like this. And so they have been duped, they have been deceived, and they are being distracted from their spiritual life as as we go forward. So we have to understand each of these and we will take... Uh, several weeks to go through each one and look at them in in the scriptures. So to begin with, I want you to look at Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth and over creeping things that creep upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, today it's not politically correct, and you have new modern translations that try to uh, change the use of the word man or mankind for the human race. This is an assault on the Scriptures because the Scripture is the mind of Christ. The Scriptures came from God. And the reason the human race is called, the words matter, and words reflect ideas, and ideas matter. This is not some patriarchal primitive thing. God first created Adam, then he created Eve from his side so that the human race would have genetic unity, so that the very first human being is a man. His name, Adam, met man. And so... 
we are mankind because we are all in Adam. You get to Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament, and Paul says, in Adam all die. It is not Eve's sin that caused the fall of the human race. It is Adam's sin that caused the fall of the human race. And so when we use words to be politically correct, like people or humanity or human beings in place of man, it is a very, very subtle rejection of the terminology that God used. That's why one of the reasons I'm against these gender-neutral translations, the new internet, today's new international version is uh, not gender-specific and all of these things. It's, it's an assault on inerrancy. It's a very subtle assault, uh, assault on inerrancy. And the assumption behind it is, well, God called it mankind, but either A, he's a, he's a sexist, or B, it's just uh, bad language. So in either way, you're, you're blaspheming God. So God said he's going to create mankind. It's Adam. We all come from man. Create mankind in our image. The hour, of course, talks about the plurality in the Godhead. According to our likeness. So you have us, our, and our indicating that God is a plurality. And he creates man in his image. Now, we've already talked about this when we talked about uh, the worldview, that man is unique, distinct. What, uh, what separates him from the animals is that he's in the image and likeness of God. Both animals and man have nefesh, which is sometimes translated soul. But mankind does not have simply soul. Man has the image of God. That is what distinguishes human beings from the animals. And you don't get the image of God because you evolved to it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God says this in, with this repetition to drive the point home. And then God blessed them. And God said to, said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This one verse just drives the environmentalists nuts. They blame Christians and especially Jews for this. Read Mark Musser's book if you can wade through all of the history of, of uh, philosophy, but it's very important to understand this. This goes back to the pagan thinking uh, in, 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 in the, among the Germans, German philosophers, back in the mid-19th century. And he demonstrates this, and this is tied and very much tied to the ideology of the Nazis. Uh, during World War II, they were they were environmentalists, in a sense, and they were um, pagan to the core, and they, this was part of their ideology and why they hated the Jews was because the Jews thought that man was to have dominion over the earth. That's what the Jewish scripture said. So this is a very, very important verse, and uh, I've read some other comments recently against Christians because of, of this verse. So this is very important to understand creation. Creation is not just, well, it's not that important. It's not like redemption or, or the spiritual life, so we don't have to be as precise about it. Yes, we do. If God took the time to have it recorded, we have to be precise about it. But the, the, the uh, plural pronouns... God, of course, is the word Elohim, which has a plural ending, I am, and you'll read a lot of scholars who will say, well, that's just a plural of majesty. Plurals of majesty do not always have the association of plural pronouns. And we know from later scripture that God has multiple personalities. So this is important for understanding uh, the human race. You have the Trinity as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one God. There is an internal unity 
that we can't quite comprehend. Because in that unity, that oneness where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, there is also a multiplicity. And if you look at the world around us, you will notice that there are many things that where there are singularities as well as multiplicities. In philosophy, they call that the problem of the one and the many. How do you have unity and diversity at the same time? Well, you can only have it if the creator himself is in his essence both one and the many. Now, that gets off into another a whole rabbit trail going into that problem, but uh, that that is essential for many things. And what we see here, we have the one God, but because that one God has three persons, there is a social relationship there. So a social relationship is eternal. In the singular Unitarian monotheism of Islam, there's only a singular person who exists forever, Allah. The problem with that is if Allah has as part of his attributes love, who does he love throughout all of eternity? Well, either he's not love or he's frustrated and he is dependent upon creatures that he creates in order to carry out his attribute of love. The reality is, although there are places where he is uh, has the attributes of mercy, it never says that Allah is a God of love because it, it, it's an internal contradiction. But in the Trinitarian view of Scripture, the, fa- the Father loves the Son, the Father loves the Holy Spirit. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves the Son. The Father loves the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loves the Father. So there is an eternal love relationship because there are eternal objects of love for each person to love. So this answers, it may be something you've never thought about, but this answers some really profound questions, but it establishes the fact that God is a truly loving God for all eternity. In fact, the first time I read anything about this was in Chafer's Systematic Theology, and he goes through a very good explanation of of this, uh, this principle. So there's an eternal social relationship between the persons of the Trinity so that when God makes us in his image, we are designed to be social creatures, and we are designed to love and to uh, be loved. But there are also role distinctions. On the one hand, there is one God, three persons, each loving the other. On the other hand, there are three persons who have three separate functions. We call this the economic trinity. Uh, This is the social relationship. The technical word theologians use is the ontological trinity in his essence. Okay, that's what ontology means. Uh, His economic relationship is what he does. The father is the architect of the plan of salvation. The father is the architect of creation. God the son carries out the plan of salvation. God the son uh, is the sort of the... uh, uh, building or construction manager, he is overseeing the project of the creation, and then the Holy Spirit uh, has his role as well. He's the one who reveals and applies the plan of salvation, and he is the one seen as the restorer of creation in Genesis 1-2, and the one who is also involved in creation. So you have these these two distinctions. So every human being is designed to have a social relationship in marriage and in family, and in those social relationships, there are these economic or role distinctions. It doesn't mean that men are better than women or women better than men. It means that God says 
that there are distinct roles. Just you have a football team, you have quarterbacks, you have tight ends, you have centers, you have guards, you have running backs. Each has to have different abilities, and they have different roles, but that doesn't mean one is a better person than the other. So God then gives the man and the woman a responsibility together as those who are created in the image and likeness of God. And there are five commands given in 128. These are responsibilities that God gives to the human race. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man is created to be God's vicegerent. Now, that's an odd word. Some people confuse it with a word that's very similar, same words, but two consonants are flipped, and that's the word vice-regent. The difference between a vice... This will expand your vocabulary. The difference between a vice-regent and a vice-gerent. A lot of theologians don't get this. A vice-regent is like a vice-president. You have the regent, the one who's in charge, and then the vice-regent is like the assistant. But a vice-gerent is a representative. Okay? It is not an assistant. It is a representative. So the vice man is created as a vicegerent to represent God by ruling over, God, in God's place, ruling over God's creation. And that's why they were created. So there in Genesis 128, we have five different responsibilities given to the man and the woman. And then we go to Genesis 2.15. And we have two more. That makes seven responsibilities. Man was created responsible. He was to carry out and fulfill these responsibilities that God gave them. And here we read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. Now that word translated tend is a Hebrew word which means has also the idea of to serve. So he is serving God. We studied this when we studied worship a while back because it's also a word that's related to worship. We are to worship God with our whole lives, and we do that by serving him. So they're put in the garden to serve God as they are representing him to all of God's creation and to keep it. That word there is the word shamar, which has the idea of guarding or protecting. There's no indication here of what they're guarding or protecting it from. But it does introduce a little note of question, what's out there? Why are they keeping it or guarding it? And of course, the serpent's going to come along later. In Genesis 2.19, there's an eighth responsibility. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, this is really interesting because what we see here is that God gives him the responsibility of naming the animals. And a lot of people will just say, oh, okay, so he names them all. No, what's involved in naming the animals? He has to observe them. Now, these are probably the animals of the field, the ones that are in the garden. Not all of the animals are the kinds that God had created. He couldn't have named them all in one day, but this is still the sixth day. And so he begins to observe these animals, these creatures of God, and he has to look at their characteristics and names them. See, in Hebrew, names mean something. We just give tags, as it were, to different things in nomenclature, but names are related to the essence of something uh, in Genesis and in the Old Testament. And so he has to, he looks at them, he analyzes them, and he comes up with names. And in the process, he discovers that for every male, there's a female. 
but not for him. He discovers there's nothing comparable to him. He not a helper. And that word is the Hebrew word ezer, which means a an assistant, someone to help him fulfill the mission that God gave him. So these are eight positives, and then you have a negative. The negative is of the the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So you have eight positives and one negative. The negative is couched, though, in the framework that God has given them everything they need. He's provided everything for their uh, comfort, for their sustenance, for their nourishment. But he says there's a test. And that test is there's one, one tree that you are not to eat from. And there's a consequence. See, this is responsibility. Responsibility means if you fail in performing the responsibility, there are negative consequences. And the negative consequence is you will surely die. Now, this is not talking about physical death, which is how a lot of people take it. Eventually, they did die physically. It took Adam over 900 years before he died. But this is a spiritual separation. We'll get into that uh, next time. We don't have time to get there t- this evening. We'll get there next time. That When they did eat of it, they were separated from God. And when God came to find them in the garden, they ran and hid. So this is the, there are consequences for irresponsibility. There are consequences for making bad decisions. There are consequences un- that, that, you know, very, very horrible consequences when you make bad decisions. And this is one of the problems today is people want to be able to do whatever they want to do without facing the consequences, without dealing with that. They they want to live as if everything is fine and everything is okay. There's, there's, there is an interesting correlation here that the desire to uh, to not have consequences is a correlation to not having absolutes, not having right or wrong. If everything is okay, then there's nothing that's going to bring about negative consequences. So in this first divine institution, what we have is, first of all, personal individual accountability to God for spiritual and physical assets. Every single human being is accountable to God for the decisions that they make in life. And they are either going to end up with eternal blessing or eternal judgment. Second, we have labor. that they, It's not toilsome at this time. It's pleasant, but it's responsibilities that God gave, and they would enjoy the fruits of their labor. And third, we're going to see that this relates to private property because of what will develop later on as we go forward in Genesis. But individual responsibility enables you to own property. In the Eighth Commandment, you have a commandment, thou shalt not steal. Well, if everybody's supposed to own property uh, in common, then there's no such thing as stealing. But from the very beginning, the Bible recognizes the right of ownership But ownership entails responsibility. You have to take care of that which you have. So this this is the consequence. And, of course, the immediate consequence that we see is what God outlines in Genesis 3, uh, 13, down through the end of the chapter. First of all, God addresses the serpent. The serpent is the one who is really indwelt by Satan and tempts Eve. And Eve succumbs to that temptation. He is wily, and he asks her a question, and she she falls for it. She says, "He says, did God really say that you can't eat from every tree? You know, is He holding something back from you?" And and Eve says, "Well, we're not supposed to eat or touch it." So she misquotes God, and then she looks at it, and it was good to eat, the lust of the eyes, and so she does, and that's the, that's the first sin. But it's the result of deception. Adam was not the result of deception. So God addresses the serpent first. 
which is in 3.12. I thought I had that for a verse. I don't. He addresses the serpent first and or said, oh, excuse me, verse 13. Yeah, that's where I am. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So then the Lord says to the serpent. So the serpent's got accountability, this animal, because of its uh, being used by Satan. Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. Notice it's cursed more than the cattle. So cattle are cursed uh, more than every beast of the field. They're cursed. On your belly you should go. That means everything in, on the planet is cursed because of their sin. So we're not li- we live in a cursed world. We live in a horrible world. We live in a world that's corrupted by sin. And there's responsibility and accountability. And so the reason... Uh, we see serpents crawling on the ground is because of this sin. That is the judgment. Then God, um, verse 15, I duplicated 14, verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, you shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise, you shall bruise his heel. Notice the yous. It's individual responsibility for the serpent. And then he addresses the woman. He says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There are consequences for your marriage. And uh, when he says, um, and, and for having children, you'll multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you'll bring forth children. There would not have been pain before. There will not be that kind of pain in the millennial kingdom. Parts of the curse are rolled back. Uh, your desire, and there's, it's not a word for sexual desire it, 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 or, or love. It is a word for desire for control. It's used in Genesis 4. We'll look at it next time. Your desire will be to control your husband, and he shall dominate you. That's really the sense of these two words. So this is the beginning of the war of the sexes and problems in marriage. And then his longest statement goes to Adam. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Notice, personal responsibility. You made the decision. You listened to your wife. You disobeyed me. Um, Cursed is the ground for your sake. So now it used to be easy, but now it's going to be hard. In, in toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now it's toilsome. It wasn't before just responsibility and everything was great. There was no antagonism. There was no problems. The earth freely gave of its fruit. Both thorns and thistles now will, it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, physical death. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return." Not pleasant. And then they're kicked out of the garden. So there are restrictions now. Before there weren't any restrictions. So now there are restrictions because of sin. Sin has horrible consequences. And that's a result of of not being obedient to God. When we are irresponsible, there are negative consequences. And we will suffer those consequences in many different ways. Some obvious, some not so obvious. So next time we're going to trace this through the Bible and see what the Scriptures teach about personal responsibility as we go forward. Father, thank you for this time tonight to look at this and understand uh, these absolute social laws that you have put into place, built into the very fabric of creation, built into our very nature as human beings, that if we are to have... Uh, prosperity and blessing and enjoy the good things of life, then we must align ourselves to your absolutes. And if we violate them, then the result is going to be chaos and disruption and further destruction. So, Father, help us to understand all of these and to see what you've revealed. In Christ's name, amen.